As I said earlier, the beginning of the service, good to see everyone today in this view. Um, I'm greeting for the first time, really glad that you are here and that we have this opportunity to worship together today. And uh, perhaps others who are going to join uh, on replay uh, this week. Um, as we get ready to uh, talk about the text from this morning, I do want to remind you that one of the things that we're doing as a church that we hope you're doing with us is we are reading through the portion of Proverbs that is the wise sayings. So we're really going to concentrate most of our preaching during this series in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Uh, but the the wise sayings from chapter 10 through 31, we want to read those together as a church in that we'd like to be reading the same Proverbs each week. So we're taking two chapters a week and reading through those, and what I've been commending to you is to maybe read about 10 or so a day, pray through them, really think about them, uh, chew over those mentally. We're, we have a church podcast. It's called the Building Up Podcast. It's really designed to, to answer questions about faith and really to try to help us as a church spiritually grow. But we're attempting right now to record one podcast episode for every chapter of the book of Proverbs we're reading through. And, and, and we're doing that as an aid, as a help to you as we read through those. So you can find that on the church app under media, or you can find it on our website. So this upcoming week will be chapters 14 and 15. Those are the two we'll be reading together. And as I said uh, previously, if you, if you really haven't been able to follow through with those, if you haven't been reading, it's okay. Just jump in uh, and just start this week. Start where you are and, and read through those chapters. And even if you've read through them many, many times, I'm praying that the Lord will reveal new things to us as we go through his word together. So as we mentioned the very first week of Proverbs when we started this series, one of the reasons that this book is presented to us is that we would see the value of God's wisdom in light of the wisdom of our culture and that we would delight in the fact that God promises to give us his wisdom that God tells us his wisdom is available to anyone who will seek it. It is not just for leaders, uh, it's not just for pastors or evangelists. His wisdom is for all of his people if we will delight in it and seek after it. And that is the promise that we have in his word. And we also mentioned that Proverbs is very practical, that it, it, it is designed to unfold practical wisdom to us. God has collected within this book generations and generations of wisdom that he presents to us. And so today in Proverbs chapter 6, and we are jumping around just a little bit um, from where we were last week, but we're going we're gonna to try to cover all of these chapters. But in Proverbs 6, we really see a practical aspect of this book. We are going to today, through Proverbs 6, see just practical wisdom unfolded for us. And the way that Solomon does it is he gives us three warnings in Proverbs chapter 6. Three warnings against three very specific types of folly or foolishness. And so we're just going to go through these warnings together um, this morning. And as we do, I'd like to ask for the Lord's help if you will join with me in that prayer. Father, I specifically pray that you would open our ears to your word this morning, that, that even as we'll pray, that you would give me the words to speak that would be good and helpful. I also pray you would guard my mouth against things that I would say that would be unhelpful. And I pray, God, that your word would be heard by all of us. I, I even want to hear the word as it's being preached today. And that it would change our heart, it would sink into us, God, and it would enlighten and reveal to us. So I'm asking, dear Lord, that you would give us attentiveness to your word, that you would give us a desire for it, God, that you would help us overcome, God, any distractions that we may be dealing with, and that you, Father, would speak to us because we believe your word is alive and active, and that this is worship to unfold your word is worship, just as praying and just as singing. So help us worship well through your word today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So warning number one, if you're a note taker and you have one of our worship guides, you could maybe fill in the blanks as we go along. But warning number one is against securing the debt of another. 
Warning number one is against securing the debt of another. Now, this, the text is not in your handout, so we're going to go to the, the Bible. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can go to Proverbs 6. As we always say, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please let us know before you leave here today. We'd love to gift you with a copy of His Word. But let's read the beginning of Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. And here's what Solomon writes. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor... If you have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So here is the very practical warning from Proverbs in these first five verses. We are warned to not make ourselves responsible for another person's debt. It, this is modern-day language for co-signing a loan. And we are told that, that if, if you do this, it is rather unwise for you to put yourself in a position of co-signing on with someone else's debt and making yourself responsible for that debt because if they default on those payments and they default on that debt, it becomes your own and it could financially ruin you. Now, it's interesting the word neighbor is used there. I think that is neighbor in a very loose sense because when you get to chapter 11, verse 5, which we have read together in the wise sayings, it is very specifically said that you should not put up security for a stranger's debt, someone who is foreign to you, someone who you do not know very well. And the practical wisdom, as this father is writing to his son, is if you have done this, try to get out of it as quickly as you can. Go to them, plead with them, do what you need to to get out of that situation. Don't sleep and don't let them sleep, son, until you get yourself out of this position that you have put yourself in. Now, while this is very practical, I think it's worthy of a few notes to kind of help us gauge why Solomon thought this was important. First of all, remember that Proverbs are wise principles So this is not teaching us that if you've co-signed a loan or a debt with someone, that it is morally wrong and sinful. What, What Solomon is teaching us, what God is saying through Solomon is, it's generally just very unwise for you to do. It's really unwise for you, and it's probably unwise for the person that you're doing it for. This is just not generally a good situation for you to put yourself into, to put your financial future into someone else's hands. Secondly, please note in verse 2 that Solomon, as he's writing this father to his son, he says, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, if you're caught in the words of your mouth, and he equates this to this situation where you've put security up for someone else's debt, And in Proverbs, where we see this, if you get snared in the words of your mouth, it's usually talking about rash speech. In other words, this was probably a quick decision that this son made without really thinking it through. He was asked something, and very quickly, without giving it thought, he said, yes, I can do that. Maybe he was promised interest back. I I will give you some interest back. And so he thought, well, this is a quick way that I can make some money. Or maybe he just didn't want to say no. He wanted to please that person. I'll tell you a funny story um, that came to my mind this week when I was thinking about this text, and it goes all the way back to my high school days. But it has stuck with me all these years. So I don't know, those of you who went to public school, if this was a thing in your school. But when I was in high school, it was a thing for people to share lockers, right? And so typically you would try to share a locker with someone who had a better locker position in the school than you did. And so I remember being a junior in high school and I had met this guy. I had one class with him. He was new to town um, and I had talked to him a little bit. And I remember he came up to me one day and he was like, hey man, can, could, could I share a locker with you? And I remember in my mind thinking, I don't, just, I don't really want to do that. Like, it's just not... But I said, yes, 
because I didn't want to tell this guy no. And I thought, well, can't hurt anything. So I give him my locker combination because he wanted to share a locker with me because it was closer to where his classes were. And so I gave him my locker combination and he started sharing this locker. Well, by the way, you're not supposed to do that. It's against school rules. But anyway, well, as the school year unfolded, I began to discover this guy wasn't of high character. He was into some things that were not all that great. And um, I started to really, really regret my choice. And I remember thinking, I, I don't know how to get out of this. I can't change the combination. That's not how these things work. And if I go to the office and tell them what happened, I'm going to get in trouble. So I just, I was like, I can't wait for the end of the year so I can get out of this. And one day, we were in class, and the bell rang. And instead of getting up, we were told, sit where you are. You are not allowed in the halls right now. Now, if any of you went to public school or if you went to Pinson, you know what that means. The drug dogs were in the school. They had brought the dogs in to walk the halls to sniff all the lockers. Some of you homeschool kids are like, what? But it was like you, they bring the dogs in and they're going to walk them up and down the, the, the aisle. So they can. And now, this story isn't going where you think it is, but I want to tell you that was the worst 15 minutes of my adolescence. I became convinced there were drugs in my locker because I knew this guy did drugs. I knew I was going to get called to the office. I knew I was going to get expelled. I knew no one was going to believe me. I think five years got shaved off of my life while I waited for those 15 minutes because I had entered into this partnership with this guy who I later discovered was not of high character. And if he had put drugs in my locker, they didn't find it. But anyway, that is what I thought about this week in this. If you get caught in the words of your mouth, if you get snared by this rash decision where you enter into a partnership with someone and you realize, wow, I shouldn't have done this, the father is saying, son, get out of it as quickly as you can. The last thing I'd like to note about this is this is not a teaching against generosity. Proverbs is very clear. We should be generous people. Proverbs says it is wise for you to be a generous person. You may remember in Philemon, when we studied that New Testament letter at the beginning of the year, Paul, when he is writing to Philemon to secure the freedom of the servant Onesimus, that Paul offers to pay the debt of Onesimus, whatever he owes Philemon, so that Onesimus can be freed. But what he didn't promise was to pay for all of his future debt. He didn't promise to secure any debt Onesimus went to or went into in the future. Our generosity should be sacrificial. Proverbs calls us to that. The New Testament calls us to that. But being sacrificial in generosity is not the same thing as being reckless in generosity. We can be generous and discerning. As a matter of fact, we should be discerning in our generosity. We are not called by the Bible to gamble our own future for the sake of being a generous person because you might even harm yourself financially so that you don't have a way to be generous in the future because you have secured a foolish debt of someone else. And so that is the first warning, very practical in Proverbs chapter 6. The second warning, warning number two in your notes, we are warned against opportunities that are lost to apathy. We are warned in Proverbs 6 against opportunities lost to apathy. Again, this is not in your handout this morning, but let's look at verses 6 through 11 together in Proverbs 6 in God's Word. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little sl slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. We are warned here through Proverbs 6 against opportunities lost to apathy. The character type that is mentioned here is the sluggard. 
Now, we talked about different character types at the beginning of this series that you see throughout Proverbs. Solomon uses different characters, the father, lady wisdom, the foolish, the wise, the sluggard. He uses these different character types to represent people. And the sluggard in Solomon's writing is worse than a fool. It's not just a foolish person, but a type of fool, someone who is very unreliable. The sluggard procrastinates often. They hate work, and they never finish what they start. As a matter of fact, in later on in the wise sayings in chapter 26, verse 15, Solomon gives kind of this funny wise saying, and I'll use my own interpretation of it, but he says a sluggard is one who puts their chip in the cheese dip, but they don't have enough energy about them to actually put it to their mouth and eat it. He goes on to say in chapter 22, verse 13, that the sluggard is someone who makes an excuse for even going out of their house. They say, well, if I go out, there's lions in the street, and I'll get in trouble. So I'll get devoured. I will, I will be eaten if I go outside. So I just need to stay in. A sluggard is someone who makes excuses for even going out of their house, doing work. And Solomon writes in, in verse 10, He says, this is someone that if you ask them to do something, they're always saying, later on, I just need a little more time to rest. A little, I need a little bit more sleep. I'm going to fold my hands across my chest. I need just a little bit more time. They sleep to escape. And what is happening is when they say a little more, just a little more, just a little more, they are slowly wasting the opportunities they are given. They're slowly wasting the opportunities to live and to work and to help. Apathy in Proverbs is more than a character flaw. Apathy in Proverbs is actually a moral issue. Work was ordained before the fall. God has always intended for us to be active. If we are physically able, God intends for us to be active, to work What the fall did was it put a curse upon work that makes it really hard. And I believe in the new heavens and the new earth, that curse will be lifted, not the curse of work. I believe we will work in heaven on the earth, the new earth that we're given. I believe there will be work that we are given to do. The curse will be lifted that makes it so hard and difficult. God works and we are to be like God. God finishes what he starts, and we are to be like him. And what Solomon says in verse 11 is that for the sluggard, for this person who just hates to work, ruin will eventually come. He personifies poverty like a robber or an armed man coming to take what is yours. Sluggards, they lack vigilance. They lack diligence, and so they are easy targets for someone who would rob them, and poverty and lack are coming to the sluggard. And so Solomon says, and God says through Solomon, he tells the sluggard, go to the ant. This is is kind of funny. Like, here's your example. Look at this tiny insect God created. And learn from him. Learn from the ant, sluggard. There's a lot of wisdom that you can gain by studying this insect. An ant diligently works. An ant is constantly working. An ant puts forth effort for their own good, also, though, for the good of their community. They don't work just for themselves, but they work for the entire community colony. How many of you have ever been shocked at a picnic or somewhere around your house and you drop some food and you don't notice it and you go to pick it up and all of a sudden you realize it is covered in ants and you're like, where did they come from? They move quickly to get what they want and to do the work that is needed to be done. And and Solomon says, without having any chief officer, in other words, they don't do this because someone makes them. God has granted them this internal wisdom that they simply know, 
I need to work and I know how to do it in the right time in the right way for my good and the good of the community that I'm in. And so Solomon tells the sluggard, look to the ant. The ant works today for tomorrow. When the ant is in a good season, he knows he needs to be preparing for a lean season. He needs to be preparing for times ahead in the future. And so verse 9, the way Solomon writes this is, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? In other words, there's still time. There's still time for an apathetic, lazy person to redeem themselves and to redeem the time that they have. And they can still do it before it's too late. But I also remember Proverbs was written, we talked about this week one, Proverbs was written to young people in the Jewish community, many of them young men who would one day be leaders. It was a training guide and a training manual. So it's not just the sluggard that would read this. It's not just the apathetic person. It's the sons and the simple. Those people who who remain uncommitted and they haven't decided yet do they want to follow wisdom or follow after folly. They're reading this as well, and this is a warning to them. And I think it's a warning for us. It's a good question. Do we work today for tomorrow? In particular, do you work today for the person that you want to be tomorrow? When it comes to your spiritual life, are you like the ant or the sluggard? When it comes to growing in Christ-likeness, do you deal with apathy? I do. I was sharing that with our small group on Friday night. I'll sit down to read my Bible. I'll have my notebook in front of me. I'll, I'll, I'll be getting ready because I'm going to go through Scripture. And then I'll hear my phone make a noise. I'll pick it up, and I don't put it down for 20 minutes because I get distracted starting to surf through apps or, or look something up. Think about the harvest because that's what the ant is doing. It's harvesting. When I think about the harvest, I think of the harvest of souls. Are we apathetic when it comes to evangelism and sharing Jesus with people? Do we make the best use of our time, or do we say, later on, just give me a little more time, a little more rest, and then I'll really start to do these things? What Solomon is saying here to us is opportunities need to be seized. We need to take advantage of them The New Testament passage is Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully, church, how you walk, not as an unwise person, but as a wise person, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. A wise person takes stock of their life and they think about the time that they have. By the way, we are supposed to rest. God is, try not resting for a couple of days and see what happens, right? God has designed our bodies to need to go unconscious a certain number of hours per day so that we can function. This is not about not resting at all, but this is about taking stock of how we live and the time and our time wasters and whether or not we're making excuses for things that we should be diligent at, the things of the kingdom of God that we should be diligent at because time is short. So look to the ant. Solomon says. And that brings us to our third and final warning, the one that we did hear this morning in the text. We are warned in Proverbs 6 very practically against violating the grace of unity. We are warned against violating the grace of unity. The warning, the foolishness, the folly that Solomon presents is sowing discord or planting discord among brothers, among people who are a close-knit group of people, specifically, of course, the church. And Solomon presents this warning in two different ways. So let's start with verses 12 through 15 again. The first example he uses is a worthless person. He says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech 
He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. And therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. And in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. That wicked man, worthless person, literally, you can translate that a devilish human. This is a person whose intention is to divide people. They intentionally want to cause conflict. They intentionally want to create suspicion. They intentionally want to see drama. We would call it, they enjoy stirring the pot. They like people at odds. They like people arguing. They enjoy that. Perhaps it makes them feel superior to other people. And so they go about and they do what they can in order to see that happen. Proverbs 16.28 says they are like a whisperer that divides close friends. And what Solomon says in verse 12 and 13 is this worthless person goes about dividing people in two ways. First of all, he uses words. He gossips, he slanders, he whispers behind people's backs in order to create this drama and confusion. Maybe he does it sometimes to their face, sometimes he does it in secret when they're not around. And Solomon says this person also does it with nonverbal communication, with gestures. They make faces, they roll their eyes. They wink and nod their head towards someone. They point and laugh. They use nonverbal communication behind someone's back or maybe even to their face in order to cause division and drama and create suspicion. And verse 14 says this is the person's lifestyle. They continually do this. They continually sow discord. One teacher talking about this passage said, everyone sins stupidly, but some people sin aggressively. This is someone among the people of God, certainly outside, but also even among the people who sin aggressively in order to create division. And then Solomon doubles down on this warning. He goes into a new section, but he's still talking about the same thing. And he begins to list out some specific attributes of this wicked person. And he uses some incredibly tough language. He lists out these attributes, not an exhaustive list, but an example of characteristics of this person. And he says, God hates these things. His language in verse 16 is there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. By the way, that's kind of odd language to us, but when you see that type of literary device used in the Old Testament where you have a number plus one more, it is actually used in order to highlight the final thing in the list. And the final thing in the list is one who sows discord among brothers. So here's what Solomon says. These attributes that God hates. First of all, haughty eyes. That is pride. It's arrogance. Secondly, a lying tongue. That is an aggressive deceit meant to harm someone else or to harm a group or a situation. Third, hands that shed innocent blood. In other words, injustice. That may seem a little odd in the midst of this list, but if you think about it, contempt for someone else's reputation, contempt for them where you hate someone so much that you want people to think badly of them and be suspicious of them, that is only a step away from having contempt for their entire existence, for their life. Then he says, a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that makes haste to run to evil. This is someone that in their heart, they plan out ways to be wicked, to create division and discord, and they have a zealousness to run toward that evil. They enjoy it. They can't wait for it. And then a false witness who breathes out lies. 
This is someone who intentionally communicates something false about someone else. They say something that is wrong about someone else in order to hurt them. And the highlighted, the main focus of the list is one who sows discord among brothers. That word brother would mean among relatives, among citizens of a country, and certainly among the people of God in the church. Now, this is heavy. This is a heavy text. That's a heavy passage. So let me say this about this passage. The direct warning here is to an insurrectionist, to someone who is intentional on division. They don't fall into it accidentally. It's not something that they struggle with or wrestle with. No, that, like, this is what they enjoy. They enjoy getting together. They enjoy causing drama. They enjoy causing conflict. And they work at it. That's the warning. And part of the warning is this is an abomination to God. It turns his stomach, so to speak. He hates it. This isn't something that God just dislikes a little bit. Like Solomon says, he hates this, and it's an abomination to him. And especially when it comes to the church. Because these people are violating God's grace. His grace that unites people under the lordship of Jesus and makes them a community. So we have to be careful here. We don't take these passages and apply them to just anyone who is unintentionally creating friction in a church. And I'm just going to be honest with you. There's a history of church leaders who will take passages like this and they will point at people who are bringing up concerns or cautions or things they're worried about among the people of God or among the church and they will point at this and say, God hates division. God hates people who are dividers, and that is a misapplication of these passages. This is not to silence those who would bring about concerns in a godly and loving way in a church body. But at the same time, we need to understand this is intended to be a warning for the sons and the simple, for the people of God. These are deadly attributes. These are deadly things. I mean, notice what Solomon says in verse 15. Calamity will come upon this person suddenly. In a moment, they will be broken beyond healing. This is a deadly thing. And so you and I, you and I need to see any of these attributes that may be in us, and we need to deal with them through confession and repentance. Because the reality is, we've all wrestled with some of these things. Every one of us. We have wrestled with gossip and slander. We've wrestled with division. We have played around and joked about people behind their backs and to their faces. This is something that we've all fallen into, even in the church But we need to recognize the seriousness of living that way as the people of God. Because God is not neutral in how he feels about it. So it's an opportunity for us to confess and repent to God when we see these things in our lives. Christ died to unite a people in redemption. You and I need to understand that. It cost Jesus his life for all of us in this room to have unity, oneness. God sent his son that we might love each other. He sent his son to die that we might be united together for all of eternity. Jesus prayed the night Before his death, what was on his heart in John 17? 
Father, I ask for them. Not just my disciples, but the ones who will believe through them, which is all of us. I ask for them that they may all be one. So that the world may believe you have sent me. Jesus prayed for oneness among his church so that the world would see and say there's something authentic about their message. If the gospel can't cause us to love each other, why would the world believe that it's a true gospel? If the gospel isn't strong enough to keep us from infighting and backbiting and slander and gossip and division, then why would anybody believe that gospel is glorious enough to save them or to give their lives to? Oneness preaches that the gospel is authentic. And here's the reality. It is not easy at all. Friday night in our small group, in a natural sense, by way of miscommunication, we did not have a teacher. But in the sovereignty of God, we had exactly what we needed. And Rob and I were there, and we realized we needed someone to teach. And so I looked at Rob, and I said, hey, don't forget the Bible says to be ready in season or out of season. What do you have for us? And he said, well, I have a thought from... This morning, something I was pondering on my way to work. And so I said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And so we talked about this thought. And what Rob was chewing over and what we ended up having an incredible discussion about was how the first commandment says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And what Rob had been contemplating is how it takes effort and strength to love as God calls us to. It takes energy. It takes work. We are called to love the Lord and we're called to love each other with our strength. It is not easy. I put this quote in your handout from Ray Ortland. We do not come to church to fine-tune our own righteousness or to airbrush our appearances. We come because we want to grow and change. We want to know as much about God as he will tell us, and we want to know as much about ourselves as he will tell us. We want his extreme grace for our extreme makeover, one step at a time. Now, that quote is not a holistic teaching on the church and why we are a part of it. But it got me thinking. There's an easy way to do church, and there's a hard way. I'm going to be honest. I grew up in the easy way. Church was a building. You went there once a week for about an hour, maybe twice. You put on your best face, your best clothes, best behavior, set up straight, listened, shook a few hands, and left. And that was that. And you know what? That's easy. That's easy. Not a single one of us would have a problem with that. We can come in here and we can pretend for an hour. That's agape, so a couple hours. But nevertheless... We can do that. That's easy. The hard way is actually the way Jesus intended. And that is that we get real with each other. We're transparent with each other. We try to live in community together. And we find out in the midst of community that some of our personalities rub some of us the wrong way we realize I probably wouldn't even be around this person if it wasn't for Jesus. We hurt each other's feelings. We offend each other, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. We don't always get along. We find pockets of people that we're kind of comfortable with, and we head to those pockets of people, and we ignore other pockets of people. And then sometimes we get upset because people are ignoring us. And sometimes other people get upset because we're ignoring them. And the entire time, Jesus says, yep, love each other. Keep going. Fight through those things. Forgive one another. Overlook one another's faults. Come together. Talk to one another. Truth in love. If you know someone's offended and you're going to the altar to offer something in worship, 
leave your gift at the altar and go to the person that's offended with you and try to be reconciled. If you have something against someone else, go to them and try to work it out. If you can't, take someone with you. Try to work it out. Not so you can get them to admit they were wrong and hear an apology, but so the two of you can fight for oneness. That's the goal. Sometimes you're going to have to swallow your pride and just live in grace. Sometimes you're going to need to deal with an issue because you just can't overlook it. But you fight for unity. That's the hard way. That's the Jesus way. That's what He intended for us to do. That's what He wants us to do. To fight for unity and oneness and to keep going and to keep going and to keep going our whole life until one day we live together for all of eternity and the curse of sin is lifted and we don't have to fight for unity anymore. That's His intention. Every one of us has offended someone else, including me. I have found that I found that sometimes leadership invites offense. Sometimes it does so in a way where I I intentionally make decisions and it brings offense, and sometimes it's unintentional. But all of us have done that. Every one of us are in positions where we probably have to ask forgiveness of someone else, and every one of us is in a position in which we need to forgive people who have hurt us in the church. But I do believe, I do believe when people really fight for unity and they're willing to speak to each other truth and love for the sake of oneness, that God will bless that and give it. I really believe that. I think there are two keys to unity in a church. I don't know if these are the only two keys, but I think they're two primary keys. One of them I was speaking to a brother about last night over text message, and that is a shared mission. One of the things that unites us is when we realize that we all have a shared stake in the gospel and a shared mission for for what we're supposed to be doing. It's that positive input in our relationship where we're called together to love Jesus and to make disciples. And we're supposed to help each other do that. And that mission should unite us. More so than our personalities, more so than our our habits or our hobbies or things that we like. But we come together in a shared mission. The other thing, the other key, I believe, is to learn how Jesus loves us and love people that way with his help. Why are we supposed to look overlook someone else's offense? Because Jesus overlooks ours in his grace every day. Why are we supposed to love someone sacrificially? Because Jesus loves us sacrificially every day. Why are we supposed to go to people who don't have friends and be friends with them? Why are we supposed to try and reach across and be united to people and have oneness? Jesus does all those things for us. We live in that grace every day. So we're supposed to share it with other people. Proverbs ten twelve in the wise saying says, Love covers all offenses. It doesn't say it covers up all offenses. It says it covers all offenses. In other words, church, if we love each other, every offense that we do to one another will get swallowed up in that love. We may have to address it, talk about it, work it out, but that love will swallow up those offenses. Our repentance and humility and mercy toward one another will swallow it up. I think every church that attempts to do the hard work of real community will face challenges. Because that type of love and oneness that Jesus calls us to is not easy and it's not natural. It's not our natural state. I think sometimes when, when we go through a time where a church goes through a period or even a person goes through a period where 
it's a season of difficulty and oneness and unity. I think sometimes we will say, you know what, Satan's really attacking us right now. Satan's really attacking our church right now. And in a sense, that's always true. Satan always opposes the church. Satan always opposes unity. Because the authenticity of the gospel is in question. So if he can disrupt unity so that the gospel is called into question, he'll do that. And maybe there are times where Satan makes a very concentrated attack against the unity of God's people. But I think often the real issue centers not on Satan's attack, but on our willingness to obey God and do what he has said. I think sometimes we could actually use Satan as our scapegoat. I know that sounds funny. But we could be in disunity with people and we could point and we could say, you know what, Satan is attacking us. And all the while, God may be saying, the problem is your lack of obedience. Repent and love one another. Repent and fight for oneness. Go after unity. Do the things I've told you to do. Sometimes it's easier to blame Satan and pray than it is to walk across an aisle and be humble and forgive someone or ask for forgiveness. So let's end this morning with a little Bible drill. I'm going to show you something if you jump around with me for just a moment. And this is filling in the last blanks in your handout. Number one, pride opposes wisdom, but humility secures the kingdom. Pride opposes wisdom, but humility secures the kingdom. I want you to compare the first thing in this list from Proverbs 6.17 that God hates, a person with haughty eyes, prideful, arrogant life, compare that to Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 in the beginning of the Beatitudes and the very first thing in that list where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God hates the prideful. He blesses the humble. He blesses those in humility. Philippians chapter 2 that we read this morning to open up, verses 3 and 4, it's all about humility. It's all about loving each other. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. And then the other key point, decisiveness brings judgment, but peacemaking brings reward. Divisiveness brings judgment, but peacemaking brings reward. The last thing in God's list, the last thing in the list he hates is someone who sows discord among brothers. But in Matthew 5, 9, the last of the Beatitudes, or next to last, is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Divisiveness will bring judgment upon a people. But peacemaking brings reward. And we make peace, Philippians 2 says, by having this mind among ourselves, the mind of Jesus who emptied himself taking the form of a servant. Peacemaking is the family business in the kingdom of God. We are told to make peace wherever it is possible with us. Peacemaking is hard. It is hard to make it and it is hard to keep it, but it opens up reward for our lives. Where division is easy, but it brings judgment and ruin. And God lays these before us and he says, obey, love each other, be of one accord. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. This morning we want to sing and pray together to end. And I, I want to make this request of you today. Certainly, if there is something that God has laid on your heart this morning, and you know from His Word, maybe it was about securing the debt of another, or maybe it was about apathy, or maybe it is about unity, but something in your own mind, and your own heart, He's addressing, please respond to Him. Pray. Take this opportunity to ponder what it is that you need to do and
pray and ask him for the strength to do it. We're going to have some prayer partners up here to my left in just a moment. So if you're praying for people, if you wouldn't mind taking that position. But if you need prayer for healing or issues of any kind, you can come up and be prayed for. It doesn't just have to be about the things we talked about today. But church, I would like to call us in this room, those of us who are gathered, and if you're watching this later on replay, to pray for the unity of agape. Not because I think we're in some disunified season or I think we're going through a particular rough time with disunity or anything like that. I think it's always something that's rearing its head because we're always trying to be a community that does things the harder way. So it's always going to be there. And we need to pray for it. Not just pray for it, but work at it. But certainly we do that in prayer. That's what Paul told the church in Philippi. My beloved, as you've always obeyed when I was there, obey now when I'm not there among you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Make the effort. It's hard. You don't know how someone else will respond. But work it out because God has called you to. And do that knowing it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God gives you the desire to honor him, and he gives you the ability. So work it out, church. So this morning, pray for unity. Pray for oneness. Pray for an authentic testimony of the gospel from agape because of our love for each other. Pray against division. And what you need to do that God lays on your heart to work for that, work for it. Knowing that he is working in you. God, I pray for the oneness of our church. I pray that we would love one another well as Christ has loved us. I pray for unity and oneness. I pray that we would do the hard work that is required. But we would know it is worth it. Because peacemaking brings reward. Father, reward us in your spirit, by your spirit, as we seek to make peace always. We do pray for protection against the enemy. And we pray for protection against our own flesh. Help us confess and repent where it is needed. And God, help us to love each other. That we would honor Christ and show a watching world that the gospel is true and Jesus is Lord. In his name, amen.